All right, good morning. I am. Hit, hit your go. I did. Okay. All right. Good morning. I am. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everyone. I'm Sage Cole, and today is July 31st. We are here at the Freiburg New Church Assembly, and it is. This is our second lecture for today. Um, good morning again. Good morning. Uh, if you've read your schedules and you've looked at the lecture titles, you've probably noticed that I've chosen some personal topics to discuss with you. My Thursday lecture title is probably more obviously personal, Mothers and Sons, in the book of Genesis. I know you've already all both met my two sons, Theo and Zachary. And Thursday, I'm hoping to explore with you all the role of the mothers of the book of Genesis, who give birth to the sons who we know are so central to the biblical narrative. But for today, those of you who are familiar with the story of Noah's Ark and its inner meaning, and who also have some experience with parenting young children, you might quickly see that today's topic is actually the most personal to me right now, the emergence of conscience. My three-year-old son, Theo, who you've all met and have experienced his funny nature, his curious self, he's very sweet and energetic, he's creative, he's joyful, and he is also operating, in my estimation, without a conscience. <laughs> now Zachary, who is not quite one, is also operating without a conscience, but this doesn't grate against me in the same way because he is so young that he is not yet actively scheming to get his own way. But Theo, on the other hand, is battling against the mores of the moral universe, the needs of other people to satisfy his own self-centered will. What he thinks and what he wants, what he believes is right and what he wants to do are all one and the same and totally fused. While he can talk a good talk and he's quite verbal, when he says to me, I won't do it again, mama, <laughs> this has very little to do with what he's going to do next. I do wish to believe that his conscience is coming soon and that I catch glimpses of it emerging but to love a three-year-old is to love those giants of old that we hear described in Genesis 6, just before God decides to wipe out humanity. <laughs> I'm just going to read that one passage if you haven't gotten familiar with it. It's so interesting. There's giants. There's men of great renown. It's just a three-year-old boy. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. As toddlers and as very young children, we all go through a stage of feeling as if we are giants in our own minds, that the world quietly revolves around our every need and wish. And for those of us who have the chance to care for and love little children, they can certainly seem like giants in our lives as well. 
I'm always amazed when I do the laundry and my children are sleeping and I'm folding their little teeny clothes. And I, I'm so awed at how small they are because they take up so much space in my life. They are giants, they are heroes, they are totally and completely self-referential and their wills are in control. Operating with that singular motivation to get what they want when they want it. And they are lovable beyond belief because many times what they want is a snuggle or to observe something new and miraculous about their surroundings to play and enjoy this amazing creation. They are lovable in large part because there's no subterfuge, no guile, no hypocrisy. They are who they are and they do what they do. But it is always about them. And what they want, and when what they want is thwarted, this is when this becomes clear. The state, while mostly lovable in a three-year-old, if allowed to continue into adulthood, becomes psychopathology, narcissism of the worst degree, the worst type of destructive evil and wickedness imaginable. These little giants must be destroyed. So the story of Noah, the flood, the ark, the destruction of the, an entire civilization, save a few, is the story of the end of one phase of life and the beginning of another. It's the story of the emergence of our early conscience, the life-saving shift in our development when we become aware that there can be a difference between what we feel and what we think, what we desire with our bodies and what we know is best with our minds. So to, to journey with that shift, I want to start um, with just a little bit of a return to uh, our first lecture this morning that um, Allison shared with us to put the story of Noah's Ark in context with the first story. Because each of these stories, as we know, is a depiction of the Lord's development, it's a depiction of our own individual development as spiritual beings, and Swedenborg also describes it in terms of the, the development of humankind. And he describes it in the terms of churches, eras of different churches throughout history. And so the story that we began with this morning of Adam and Eve represents that first church, that most ancient church, the first church of civilization. And this time, this church is characterized by direct contact with God. In the story of the Garden of Eden, the Lord walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. At this time in history, there is a direct line of connection between God and these early peoples. Swedenborg has beautiful descriptions of how they didn't even need language. Communication was with their eyes and their respiration, much like little Zachary. Nothing was needed to be learned. Everything was inherently known from birth. And in this way, these peoples thoughts and their wills were completely fused. There was no need to distinguish between the two. What they understood to be true, they wanted. What they wanted, they understood to be true. And as I've said, this early church roughly corresponds developmentally to our early infancy. While this type of cohesion fit in the Garden of Eden, when there was no need to tame any selfish desires, once Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this changed, and it changed quickly. Now this inability to distinguish between thought and will became destructive. The Lord had no way to reform the descendants of Adam and Eve as their wills became more and more selfish. 
And so a new church was needed, and this is when enter, when Noah enters the scene. Just as an aside, I've, as I've been journeying with Noah and the story of Noah, I've been thinking a lot how interesting it is that it's so central to our teaching of children. I mean, if you've visited any Sunday school room, there's going to be a picture of Noah's Ark on the wall or a nice plush boat with the little animals to play with. It really has everything children love. Animals, water, a boat, a rainbow. And for children who are young and are not too inquisitive and not really trying to put their minds around the whole story, which most children really don't, they're in a state of innocence, and they're not really thinking about anyone beyond themselves, they hear this story and it's, it's very lovely. They don't think too much about the fact that all of humanity is destroyed in this story. They quickly just imagine themselves on that boat, you know, rocking above the waves, cuddled in with their favorite animals, and they're not thinking about everyone else drowning out around, around them. And I wonder as an adult if that's sometimes true for you as well when you think of the story of Noah. Does it just feel a little bit lovely and do you not really put yourself in that experience and recognize the violent aspects of this transition? I think there's something about that. There's something really deep about that, how it can be lovely and violent, and how our perspective, when it's self-centered, just sees it as sort of very lovely. And yet, when we are really thinking of others, we recognize the violent, harrowing nature of this change. So just think about that. The thing about the dawning of conscience is that when you don't have it, you don't have it until you have it. You remain blissfully unaware until you are aware. And once you become aware, that's when things really become difficult. So I started this lecture back in June, and when I was doing this work in between mothering duties, Theo was in a particularly challenging state. And I recognize, I really was, and I'll be interested to talk with you all after the lecture about when you think conscience really does emerge in children. Because in my estimation, it seems like he's still in the Garden of Eden. He's still in the most ancient church, but after, the kick, the, after they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He's much like Cain, striking down his brother in the field. And then, as I said, <laughs> like the giants and heroes. I like that they're giants and they're mighty men. You know, that he would love to be a mighty man. But that he doesn't have a lot of conscience about it. When he bowls his little brother other over or insists that he should have ice cream for breakfast, he's not doing this from any place of reasoning or thoughtfulness. He's just being. And he still needs to get to a place of connecting together some more brain cells before he can really experience empathy, remorse. Before he can really hold the thought of how he wishes to be long enough in his mind for that thought to impact how he actually is. I think the time frame is maybe two minutes, and only if there's ice cream at the end of those two minutes. So I'm not sure if he's making progress. I hope that he is. But while I'm focusing on him a lot, because he is the mighty man in my life, because it is this early shift from infancy to childhood when this dynamic really is at play, from that bliss of being a baby to the confusion and complexity of childhood, this shift from the most ancient to the ancient church, I also believe, and I want to encourage us this morning to think about how it also plays out, not only in two to three-year-olds, but in all of our experience. 
I don't think this lecture only applies to them. And I don't think it only applies to those people that we see outside of us that we believe are operating like two or three-year-olds, who we see as impulsive or selfish or unable to consider or understand or even become aware of the pain that they are causing others, acting without thinking, acting in spite of our best thinking. I think we all at times blunder through life, leading with our worst version of ourselves and finding ourselves unconsciously unable to stop. It's tempting to make it all about Theo and it's tempting to point fingers at others. I was certainly very tempted to go on for a while in this lecture about a certain political figure that exhibits a lot of these behaviors, but, but I'm not going to. I had to say it once. But when I do that, I am also missing the point. The whole point of the biblical story is always to come back to the fact that it is a story about us, all of us, all of the time, really. That it's not a story that sets people apart, and we're not meant to make ourselves always out to be the good guy, always atop the boat, safe and warm, but to see how this whole holy drama is playing out for me and for you. So let me ask you, are there things that you do without thinking? Are there things that you say to your spouse that are hurtful, that you know you shouldn't say, and yet you say it again and again, even though in your better moments you remind yourself that it's not how you want to be? Do you always eat that extra piece of cake and then regret it later? Does criticism make you defensive? And do you attack back quickly without taking the time to consider if there was something constructive in it for you? Do you sometimes drive a little faster or a little recklessly when someone is preparing to overtake you in traffic? Some innate need to win or be first, taking over your desire to drive safely? When you're having a bad day, do you assume the worst of other people? Are you rude and inconsiderate? Are there other thoughtless actions that plague you, that somehow keep happening quickly before thought, despite your best efforts to bring your higher self to the table? I listed all those because those are all things I do. Think about it for a minute. Think about if something comes to mind, something that's your sort of particular two-year-old self I'd encourage you, if you have a pencil, to write it down. It's always more impactful to have it concrete in some way if there's something that you really are recognizing you do unconsciously, and yet you would, in your better moments, wish to change that aspect of yourself. Maybe it's something you did this morning. While most of us have, in most aspects of our lives, moved far beyond our own terrible twos and threes, and maybe beyond, but I don't want to think that it goes past three. There's still aspects of ourselves that have not yet matured. And in my understanding of the inner sense and the process of regeneration, there are different parts of us that are changing and growing all the time. And there are always things that are in need of work and improvement. And so there may be parts of us that are still operating much like Theo. 
And the work of bringing these aspects of ourselves into higher consciousness is part of the spiritual path. The more we can recognize what those things are and that we have freedom to make choices, the more we grow and develop and the more joy we are able to be invited into. So holding on, hopefully you all were able to come up with something that you do. I'm sure some of you are not, don't have any, anything that you do thoughtlessly, but hopefully all of you were able to come up with something. Think about that um, behavior, and let's now just walk through the story. And I am not going to try to explore every small correspondence of the Noah's Ark story. It is a beautiful story with many, many details, and in the discussion hour, we can certainly get into more of it. Um, but we'll just choose three of the main events. So, first off, there's a flood coming. The water is coming, and in, in Swedenborgian terms, it is a deluge of evil and falsity. It's true things that have actually become kind of overwhelming. And when I think of Theo, the, you know, all those things that he, he knows are true. It's, it's really good. I did have ice cream for breakfast, and it's really good for me to get what I want. No, I don't want to change my clothes. All those things are true for him, but it's like so much. And all of those things that are true for his own selfish reward are not true in the higher sense of his making his way in the world and being connected with others. And this is a great, I mean, there are many different endings that happen in scripture, but the flood, I don't know. We'll have to debate whether, whether it's the best one, but it's, it's certainly the most dramatic. And when that flood is coming, it's the complete end of one way of being. And I, I actually, as much as he drives me crazy, I'm a little bit, it'll be sad when he's fully formed that conscience because there'll be a loss. There'll be a loss of that, beautiful, youthful spirit that is just so connected and in his body. And, and it's, it's a dramatic end. A baby is very, very different from a young child. And in the same way, when we are at a point of recognizing that some behavior in our lives is really causing just havoc and we're ready to let it go, there's a way in which that old person who was has to be completely destroyed. This is certainly very apparent in, in very destructive behaviors like addiction. This is a, that's a really good example here. Something very dramatic has to take place. And for a person to overcome an addiction, usually they have to go away to rehab, separate from their older life. Sometimes they have to move to a whole other state because the people that were in their lives were negatively affecting them. Something very great and dramatic must happen. I think about this in marriage, when there are problems in a marriage, when there are behaviors that are being repeated again and again. Usually, for real change to take place, it's not always going to happen subtly. Sometimes it's going to happen because one of the partners is going to have an ultimatum or say, Let's, we need to go to counseling or we need to undergo some really deep work. To really, really change is to let go of something that really was working for us for a time, for whatever reason, and to bring in a whole new life. And if you've ever undergone a really big change, you know it's not just about letting go of that old life, but it's creating a whole new one. And that can be, it can be very dramatic, very painful. Did any of you see the Noah's Ark movie with Russell Crowe? Mm -hmm. 
There's a Grease. I love Russell Crowe, so I watched it. My dad's laughing. Um, but the end of that, my favorite scene in that movie was, you know, the story after the flood in the Bible when Noah's daughters see him, and it's kind of a bizarre story. They see him naked and sort of, it, it, I don't know, I, I never really made sense of that story. And then in, in the movie, the way they depict that is that he is not just lying there naked. He is distraught. He is totally distraught from what he's just gone through, watching all of his neighbors and friends die. And that's why he's just, he's almost given up in that moment. And I, I found that very powerful because I think there's a way that when we are going through a spiritual change like this, it is not just riding on a boat and looking for a rainbow. It is huge, a huge relinquishing of, of a way of being that really, really has, had served us. And we have to really be ready and at a point when we're willing to put others before ourselves to make that change. And it can be, it can be painful, it can be a grieving process, and it can require something really drastic and dramatic like the flood. So now let's think about the ark. The ark, and this is one we'll, we'll get into more discussion later because there's so many lovely little um, parts of the correspondences of the ark. But the primary aspect of the ark that I want to lift up is the fact that it has compartments. And that's what we've already talked about a bit. The ark is built with rooms. And Swedenborg describes how those rooms are the depiction of the separation between our thinking and our will between our understanding and our will, between our sense of what is right and our will to do it. So up until this point, it was just, we were just beings going about, serving our needs, doing our thing. And when we come into conscience, we start to recognize that our thoughts can be reformed and can start to make decisions about what we do. And that's why when I think of some of the stuff I do that's like a two-year-old, I don't know, my best example, I guess, is sitting in the passenger seat and telling my husband which way to turn when he's driving. And he does it, he, he can find his way, and it really irks him, and yet I just, it's like instinctive. I can't even stop it. But I need to, rec- and it, when I do it, I'm really in my instinctive mode. So when I don't do it is when I'm really stepping back and saying, okay, you love him, he's... 48 years old, he knows how to drive a car, you can trust the, your husband, you know, your thinking really has to get above here and that this is not worth, you know, this action. So this is that first step of conscience, and conscience, the whole, the really grounding nature of conscience is that our will and our thinking are separated. And the other lovely correspondence of that is that Swedenborg describes that the compartment, one of those compartments where the will is, it doesn't really specifically say this in the Bible, but he, you know, he had a direct line. So he saw that the one compartment where the will is is completely sealed. He really described that that was where there's no window, there's no door, that for this transition to happen, the will just needs to be quieted, protected, held, <coughs> kept from influencing the process. But the compartment where the understanding is is where he described the window that opened up into the heavens was, and also the door that opened up into the rest of the ship. So it's the thinking at this point in our development that really needs influence and care. And so that window, you know, is open to the Lord's insights. And I think about, you know, when change happens, we, we need 
We need to come to church and hear sermons. We need to read the word. We need to listen to our elders. We need, we need wisdom from God to go a new way. We need to learn from others who have overcome the same problems that we've been in. And that window and that is what is allowing that space for our thinking to really be, to grow and to deepen. Because it's our thinking now that needs to get really, really strong and really, really solid to be able to match our will, which has gone crazy and really needs a little quiet time. It needs a timeout. And then the door, he Swedenborg describes, is corresponds to our hearing. So it, there's the, there's the um, seeing through the window of our understanding and then the hearing. And, and Swedenborg describes hearing as obedience, our willingness to, to hear the Lord leading and to obe- obey, to hear a new way of being and to just do it. And I, I mean, there's just no greater example than the 12 steps. When you're first kind of overcoming a, a bad habit or a negative behavior, you just have to listen to what's true from someone who knows better than you and just do it and not think about it too much because our will will easily start to try to take back, take over. So the ark is a beautiful depiction of what it takes to to change and how we can how part of change is is just enclosing ourselves and trying to hold hold that will at bay and make space for our understanding to grow and deepen. And within that ark as all the sort of this old way of being is is destroyed around us, we are protected and our inner self, our inner being is is held and cared for. Um, In AC 661, he says, the remnant within us includes every lesson in innocence, in charity, in mercy, and in religious truth that we have received from the Lord since childhood. So all that goodness is protected and cared for as we seek to learn more and to strengthen our thinking and our understanding. And it need, it, we need a lot of wisdom to overcome that will because it is, it is so strong. So then lastly, um, the last image I'll just lift up is, of course, the animals. We all love the animals. And they come in two by two. And so these are all of our affections. Um, a little bit of each, and there are unclean and there are clean animals, but there are more clean than unclean. So we don't just start fresh and perfect. We continue in this arc to have our negative affections, our positive affections, but there are just a little bit more positive ones than negative ones to give us the strength we need to be reformed and to change. I liked um, Allison's, she mentioned, sometimes when we change, we want to be like, oh, I've overcome this, and I I've moved, moved past it, I'm no longer judging other people, and I'm the best, and there's no one more annoying than that person. So this, this change does not mean that we have come out shining and perfect. We are still flawed beings. We, are still, we still have those negative impulses within us that we're seeking to overcome, and yet we're trying to kind of keep those better angels, just to keep the scale just a little bit tipped in our favor so that we can walk into this new life. And when we walk into that new life, the rainbow is in the clouds. Noah builds an altar to God, says thank you, and there's a whole new phase of life. So as, as you know, there are many other, many other images involved in this story, and I think we could, with this framework, I hope you'll be inspired to 
dig, continue digging on your own and think about how each of these uh, symbols can play out in this journey, whether it's to help you have a sense of your three-year-old and his experience, or whether it's to connect to your own life and things that are going on for you where you are caught up in patterns of thoughtlessness and reactivity. And I'll just close with, you know, as I've been, as I, what I think is interesting about Noah is, you know, it's a very dramatic story, beautiful and violent and kind of short, especially when you think about the errors of churches that Swedenborg describes. The Noah church only lasts for a very short period of time in the grand scheme of things. So I take comfort in that, that the twos and threes only last for a short time. They're dramatic, but then they change. And in the same way, I think this, this story on a spiritual level for our own uh, development, maybe it corresponds for us as well to these big, big moments, these big kind of crucibles that we face in our life. When there's something really important that does need to change, and it, it might require some dramatic effort. It might require marriage counseling or rehab or a retreat away where you could make a commitment to God. There might be something that really has to happen in a very physical way, clearing out all the donuts in your house, whatever it is. But once it happens, maybe it doesn't, it's not going to be the thing that has to characterize your whole life because there's lots of work ahead of us after the flood and as the rest of creation is established. And there's lots of work on the, the path of regeneration as well. So thank you. And if there are any questions, we have some time for discussion. How old was Noah when he was called to build the Okay, let me rephrase. Any observations? Um, I, I'm, I'm not a biblical expert, so anybody know? How old was Noah? I don't know. He, I'm asking you right now. Yeah. 600, he was, 600 years. Yeah. And how long did it take to build the ark? Go ahead and share. Uh, we don't have to quiz years. Yeah. So he was 730 mm-hmm. when it floated. Right. Now, the, the Nephilim uh, were created from the, uh, like it says here in Genesis 6, mm-hmm. uh, the sons of God mm-hmm. looked on the daughters of men mm-hmm. and saw that they were fair and so on. That was a great transgression. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a great reduction in the spiritual condition of man. Mm-hmm. And from that offspring came the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. The giants. Okay, another question. Where where are the skeletons? Where are the bones? I'm happy. I'm happy for you to offer your observations. You don't need to quiz me. <laughs> okay. So what is it? What does that mean to you? Right. There are 500 million year marsupial tiger bones, but where are the Nephilim bones? Mm-hmm. The Nephilim were uh, they were six cubits tall and taller. Mm-hmm. A cubit is a foot and a half. That's a mm-hmm. nine foot man. Now, th- those, uh, those Nephilim uh, prevailed uh, on the earth. They didn't die in the flood. Uh, they, it may imply that they died in the flood, but Ham was cursed after the ark landed, right? There was Shem, Ham, Japheth. Mm-hmm. Ham was the cursed son. And he didn't just walk backwards to cover up the nakedness of his father. There was much more to it than that. He was cursed and sent to Canaan. Mm-hmm. He wasn't sent alone. He had to have had a female. And from, from that, that uh, family cursed and sent mm-hmm. came the Amorites. Do you know all that? 
Are you Amorites. okay? The Amorites were the giants. Yes. And they had to be exterminated, and they were fought against by the Ammonites. The Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. Mm -hmm. Lot. They were giants. Do you, are you sharing this because you are you? Is there something you wanted to offer a different perspective? Well, it's just a continuation of your story. Sure, sure. So it's a longer story. Oh yes, yes. And they had to go, and I learned in the writings. Uh huh. The, the, uh, uh, the giants, the Nephilim, the Zuzim, all that, they, uh, they lived until the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. and that is when they were exterminated, simply by the fact of the crucifixion. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. But when you speak, it's about, it's about, um, it's, not, is it a, it's not an allegory, but it is, would it be an allegory? Mm -hmm. uh, you're not talking about the actual <coughs> event. You're talking about what it means in our transformation right. mm -hmm. from having a conscience or not having a conscience mm -hmm. right. to coming to have a conscience. Right. Right. So the understanding within the context of Swedenborg isn't about the actual event and the, and the giants and the prisons right. and all that, right. but it's, it's more about our journey transformation, am I correct? That's, that's the perspective that I'm taking. You know, the, the, the word has all kinds of different layers of meaning, and the meaning I'm trying to lift up is how this might apply to our own journey. And where journey. in the context of that is the protection? With you and your son, you and mm -hmm. your husband are the protector mm -hmm. of him, but who is the protector in our transformation? God? I would say always God. I mean, that, I, I, you know, I describe this a lot in terms of what we do. We build the ark. We, but obviously God is the one directing the whole process. And so he's our protector. Always, always. You. Yeah. Hugh? One of the things I liked is you put a perspective on it that many of us, our children, you know, we've got grandchildren. We forget all of this, mm. these things. So you've got this, I would say, refreshing, fresh perspective on seeing the stage of development of consciousness. It, at one point it reminded me of the song Toyland, Toyland, once you pass the border you can never come back again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because once the conscience is there. But the other thing is the internal process. We kind of as parents try to guide it. Mm -hmm. but the internal process is the Lord working within them. Mm -hmm. That's a good reminder, Hugh. Mm -hmm. uh, someone over here? Martha? Yes, I just have a cute story. Okay. <laughs> um, I get a... Um, grandparents calendar. David and I uh -huh. have a different saying every day. And this uh, grandfather was reading the Noah's Ark story to his three-year-old. Uh -huh. And so when they were done, the three-year-old said, uh, were you on the Ark, Grandpa? <laughs> 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 no. How come you're still here? <laughs> <laughs> Very cute. Very cute. So, um, I was keying in on the part of the story. It was very comfortable when you're talking about your three-year-old, but when you talk about yourself, uh, a story that comes to my mind is how we're, I'm in a restaurant with my spouse, having you know waiting to order dinner, and um, I knew what I wanted, and the waitress came over and she takes the order. I gave her my order, and and then my wife took a little longer than I thought was appropriate, you know. And so finally she said, I'll have a turkey sandwich. And I said, well, and I made a joke. 
which I, I think of myself as a pretty funny guy, you know, <laughs> and, and stuff. And when she, when it, when, when um, the waitress left the, the table, she, my wife said to me, you know, she didn't know you were joking, and that that really got me. You know, like you were saying, sort of like Noah was laid out. That sort of laid me out. What do you mean, my? All these jokes aren't as funny as I think they are. <laughs> That's not funny. No, it's, it's, it just wipes you out. Card? Mm -hmm. um, I very much appreciate your, your talk and the level at which you were um, bringing our attention. Uh, and on this idea of protection and what mm. protects us and what is protected, um, of course, it, it would be the remnants, as the English word mm. is, or remains. It's odd that there's not a better word for that. Mm. Um, the Latin word doesn't help a lot. It's, it's reliquy, mm. um, which means that which is remains. So um, I just want to appreciate, sometimes I read Swedenborg as metaphor this is an analogy. This is a, a using a physical image to refer to an internal process. Mm -hmm. But with this idea of remains, actually, I believe he's extraordinarily concrete. He's very literal. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's very interesting <coughs> idea of human nature. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fairly, it may be original with Swedenborg. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about that. but. Mm -hmm. He's telling us that what we learn is what our experience as infants, mm -hmm. which we know is literally, I mean, under the best of circumstances, mm -hmm. gorgeous, oceanic, bliss, happiness, security. He's saying that these states mm -hmm. are literally, concretely stored in our psyche, being protected by the Lord. Even under odd, I don't want to go into the other side of that, but mm -hmm. so, and what happens is apparently we reach a certain stage in adulthood, and again, concretely, literally, those states return. Mm -hmm. That is a very odd and interesting doctrine. I'm not sure you'll find it elsewhere, mm -hmm. and uh, it's extraordinarily beautiful, mm -hmm. and it does come through nicely in what mm -hmm. you share. Mm -hmm certainly connects to the importance of the mother as well. well literally, of course, that's yeah. what parents do. They right. protect the child. Right. But, but we're protected even as children and as adults. Mm -hmm. Those states are still there. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Gard. Well put. Anyone else? I think we have about five more minutes. Sage, thanks so much. As, as a parent who dealt with a temper tantrum this morning of my mm. seven-year-old who was mm -hmm. acting like a two-year-old because she didn't want to wear pink for the second day in a row. A spiritual harvest out of hearing this. But, mm -hmm. but I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful to think about the, um, get this wonderful phrase, relinquishing a way of being. Mm -hmm. The sadness in your own children changing, paralleling our, our own um, difficulties in letting go of these bad ways of being in the world that we have, that give us power or, or something, that there's there's a loss in becoming a new person. So that was a new insight you you gave into the story. Thanks so much. Okay. And this this just shows me again how you, there's all these different levels and layers in, in the story. And, and, and for Swedenborg, his, I wish George was here to talk about 
the, the, the word explained in his project and sort of seeing where it really becomes, how is the scripture the mirror for you and, and your sense of relationship with the divine mm -hmm. is, is the most important way of, of reading and locating oneself. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'll have to go back to, to Noah with, with new eyes mm -hmm. on that. Thank you. There's a lot to dig into. Yeah. Martha? Yes, I was thinking when you were talking about giants, you never want to say to a two or three year old, you're a very cute little boy. No. Because they are always big. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, girls and boys, they were always big then, uh, never little, uh, they're big, yeah. no matter what age. I know, big. isn't that funny? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Anyone else? Right. Well, thank you so much for your attention, and we have about 15 minutes. <laughs>